Our call to worship is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Please turn to page 897 in your pew Bible. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. I will be reading from the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 22, verses 9 through 18. It's found in the Pew Bible, page 20 and 21. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as the burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on, that, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Amen. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 7, 51 to 60. You can find the same in the Pew Bible on 1010. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I, have, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him 
dragged him out to the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When they had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. Our gospel reading is from John 13, 1, 33 to 35, Pew Bible, page 993. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. My thank you to the Rave family. I... Uh... It was pointed out to me just a minute ago that uh, I've really laid it on you guys today. Three hard, sad passages. And I don't mean to uh, trouble you in spirit. We'll try to work through these in a way that's redemptive and, uh, and that we learn something. We've been talking about the story of God. We've been talking about our story. And uh, if you've read my letter this week in the bulletin, you know what I'm referring to. I had the privilege of hosting a, a little panel at the turn of the millennium. Every, do you remember the turn of the millennium? The world was going to come to an end. None of our computers were ever going to work, and uh, the sky was going to fall. And I mean, it was just really going to be Armageddon, basically. Uh, it, it was more of a yawn than it was a yell, uh, as it turned out. Um, but a lot of people were thinking about what the next millennium would hold. And so I held a little conference on that, and I particularly focused on where we thought the church might be headed. What would the fate of the church in the new millennium be? And it was a challenging question because none of us can look into the future and know uh, and our churches, while growing worldwide, many of them are struggling right here in North America. So what does it mean? What's the future of Adventism? And my friend, theologian and pastor Smuts Van Royen said something very profound. He said, when God's story, when his story becomes our story, the future of the Adventist church will be, and, and I, I, I have the gist of his last word, but I don't remember it precisely, but it's something to the effect of it will be sure or secure or clear. It was one of those words that indicated that when God's story is our story, we'll know where we're going and we'll have comfort in that. We'll be secure. And I thought, you know, he's right. He's absolutely right. How does the story of God become our story? How do we make God's story our story? We're not God after all. But just to recap really quickly, remember we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God. 
and the power of language and words, about procreation and all the ways in which creativity are manifest in the way in which we build civilization and city, our inventive and creative powers, while nowhere near close to those of the maker, are profound indeed. So we talked about what it might look like to reclaim that image more so than we have already. We talked about what it means to be fallen and redeemed, how that's part of our story too. And it's part of God's story on both ends because as creator and the one who has redeemed us, he's been intimately involved in every step of our journey. So part of making his story our story is just acknowledging that the two are intertwined, that they're related, that we can't escape God no matter what we say our beliefs might be or what we say our values might be because God is present to us in our own image, which is patterned after his own image. And God is present to us in the grace that has entered the world in Jesus Christ and transformed the world forever. It can never be the same. We can never be the same. We can never think the same. So let's just take a few Bible stories and explore them a minute to see maybe how his story is our story or has become our story. Abraham, you recall, was the first patriarch. Shemite, but not Jewish. He came from the Mesopotamian city of Ur. The ancient city of Ur was a, a high point of civilization. They did not know the one true God. In fact, they had many deities. And it's in this context, in this place, that God speaks to him and singles him out and says, go to a place I will show you. Now, God is, is so wonderful because God speaks in languages that we can afford, uh, understand. We have to work at it a little bit, but he speaks in ways we could understand. And so he, he actually, very early on, you can read it yourself, made a pact with Abraham, made him a promise actually entered a covenant which is stronger than what we would consider to be a contract today. Today we have all kinds of ways to break a contract, right? We make them, but we make them to break, don't we? Pretty much in our society. Oh, come on. You've never been to the court system if you don't know that our, our contracts are made to be broken in this society. But an oath, if broken, had very serious consequences for those of you from the Caribbean and from parts of South America where um, voodoo and these sorts of black magic arts are practiced, you have something much closer akin in understanding to what was going on in Genesis. You see, Abraham and God entered a self-maledictory oath or covenant. Abraham basically took two doves, a bull, a sheep, a ram, I'm probably missing one of them, cut them in half and lay one half on the carcass in a line on this way and another half of the carcass on this line except for the birds. Those he did not cut in half, he just killed them. 
And with these carcasses lining the aisles, so to speak, he created an aisle, basically, from which he would pass and God would pass. And by passing between these vivisected carcasses, these bisected carcasses, animals, he was saying, in effect, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals if I don't fulfill my word. God's presence shows up in the night as a lantern, walking, a fire, a light, walking in the darkness, going between these bifurcated animals. How weird. How strange. Is this the language of heaven? When God wants to communicate his word to somebody there, does he cut up a bunch of animals and walk between them? He does not. But when it comes time to speak a language someone can understand, he's gracious and willing to reach out to you and speak a language you can understand. You've heard of the love languages? There are five of them. I have all five. (laughs) I like gifts. I like compliments. I like acts of service. You name, I'm into all of the five love languages. That's just me. But some of you are only into one or two of those, and that's you. God speaks all of our languages and then some because he loves you and wants to communicate with you. So the hard thing is, when we read these stories, I don't know how to say this nicely. When I read these stories, I just kind of, there's a part of me that freaks out. There's a part of me that says, this is so weird. Really, I believe this? This is so out there. How will I ever communicate this to a world that's as secular and estranged from this as our world is? Do you ever have those kind of feelings reading some of these stories? Yeah, no. All right, I'll stand alone. It's all right. But I come back and I realize that what God is doing isn't that bizarre. It's bizarre to me because what Abraham expected was bizarre. His culture, his expectations were bizarre. The way they did business was bizarre to me, not God. God spoke a language Abraham could understand. And he entered an oath with him and said, I'm going to be the one who makes promises to you and fulfills them. There were several promises God made to Abraham. And at the end of it, The only sign that he asked from Abraham, at least up to the point of our story today, was, I tell you what, this will be a sign that you're going to be my people. You're going to circumcise all the males of your tribe. It's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask. But Abraham complied. Abraham complied. And so when it came time for a promise to be fulfilled... And Sarah gave birth. Sarah gave birth to Isaac, laughter. And they enjoyed those days of raising him, even though Abraham's heart had been broken as he sent Ishmael into the wilderness. Now God visits him and speaks to him again. God has spoken to Abraham a number of times. We like to think of him somehow as this really lowly sort of shepherd wanderer guy moving into a strange territory. 
Abraham was a prince, you could say, a king of sorts. He had quite the spread and a lot of resources. He was indeed a, a, a princely sort of figure in these early, early times. And an important figure and a stranger in a land. Do we resonate with that metaphor? Don't we just say, I'm but a stranger here, I'm just passing through? Isn't that what we say? Isn't that Abraham's story? And isn't that God's story? Because isn't our place, our home with him, isn't that what we... You don't know? Not sure? Okay, we'll work on that. God speaks to Abraham and says, I have something for you to do. I want you to take Isaac up to that mountain over there and I want you to give him to me. I want you to sacrifice him. Now, the first thing I would have been saying is, you've got to be kidding me. He's the son of promise. The second thing I would be saying is, this can't be you because that's what the Canaanites do. I've seen it. That's not who you are. Why are you asking me to do this? This must be a deception. You you tempted to answer that way to God? Abraham packs up the next morning, cuts wood, puts it on his donkey. Well, he packs up his donkey, cuts wood, puts it on his son. That's the accurate story. And he himself carries fire and a knife, and they head up the mountain. Anybody know where this mountain is, by the way? It's in Jerusalem. Where the mosque, the Dome of the Rock, is built, built there in 691, it's glorious, beautiful, beautiful Muslim structure and the focus of so much controversy in the Middle East because it's right there in the center of Jerusalem that Islam has this incredible structure. And it's not just in any place. It's on the rock that Abraham was alleged to have built the altar to sacrifice Isaac gives you an idea of how old these stories that we're dealing with even today are. So he goes up, he builds the rock altar, he puts the wood on it, he binds his son, lays him on the altar, sharpens his knife. I'm sure they've had a conversation. I'm sure Abraham shed a few tears. But he raises his knife and he hears the voice again. Don't you touch that boy. Don't you harm him. Unbind him now. Abraham stops, he unbinds Isaac, and they see a ram caught in a thicket. And that becomes the burnt offering. God says something really beautiful to Abraham. He says, Abraham, you have not withheld from me your only son, your beloved son. Haven't we heard language like that somewhere before? Say it with me. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? How about Romans 8:23? Why don't you turn there very quickly? Excuse me, 8.32. I sometimes flip things around. Romans 8.32. 
I'm going to read 31 first. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No one. We see in the story of Abraham and this awful thing that God seems to have asked him to do and this setup that we can't relate to, and a sacrificial system that seems cultic and ancient and old to us and irrelevant in some ways to us. But out of all of this story, God is already in the book of Genesis making his story our story. Because as Jesus comes in the flesh and lays down on the altar, so to speak, becomes the lamb slain for all, once for all, for the removal of sin and the redemption of humankind, the story of God becomes the human story. Now, how does that story become ours? It becomes our story when we, like Christ, have been crucified. How does this happen? Surrender. We give ourselves to the God who died for us, and Paul says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ, and so now I participate in his resurrection and therefore in his life. Not I, but Christ. There's something powerful about that. In the gospel, God's story becomes your story. God's story becomes our story. When we make that choice to be in Christ, new creation, when we make that choice to die daily with him, to him, actually, I think the text says more accurately, we die daily to ourselves and are resurrected and live in Christ, right? When we make that choice, God's story becomes our story. Let's fast forward a little bit. The early church is just forming. Christ has been crucified. The apostles and their families and friends of the apostles have been gathered in the upper room praying. The Holy Spirit has come mightily upon them. And they've begun speaking to the crowds who have gathered in their native tongues, languages these Galileans did not know. Thousands are being added to the church daily, and the news of what's happened with the crucifixion and, more importantly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is beginning to spread around the then-known world, the biblical world. It's huge what's happening. And as Greeks and Jews mingle together and the gospel goes forward to both groups, in fact, goes forward to all groups in the ancient Near East, Human nature, being what it is, 
some of the Greek women began to look around and say, hey, wait a minute, we're widows and we're not being cared for the way the Hebrew widows are. We're all Christian, are we somehow less worthy? And the apostles were troubled by this. They had enough to do. And so deacons were formed. Deacons will talk more about that another time. I know you've got lots to do, but I've got enough to do too, so I need a good core of deacons. The apostles needed deacons, and so they designated them to have a spiritual stake in the ministry of the church and to take care of these widows in particular and to provide for their needs. Stephen was one of them, a powerful witness. And he's accused of blasphemy, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, and he gives this amazing testimony. And I want to apologize right now to so many of you from the bottom of my heart. So many of you have given yourselves in service, and we let you do things that are so important, but without word. Part of being a deacon, part of being a servant of Christ is word. It's testimony. I'm looking forward as the next few weeks unfold, inviting some of you to share a word, to tell us in some words what Christ has done for you, what he's doing in your life and in your heart, how he's moved in ways that you can see. But the deacons had word. And Stephen had a powerful word in his testimony as we get to this section of Acts. He's being judged, and he stands not as one accused, but as the accuser. He says, let's read it. It was read in our text this morning, Acts. Turn back to Acts. Seven fifty one. You stiff necked people. Doesn't sound like much of an epithet to me, but um, it carried a punch. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. I can just hear some smart aleck Sanhedrin members thinking to himself, Well, it isn't the heart and the ears that matter, buddy. But it was the heart and the ears that mattered. He's getting to the core of it, what the message of Jesus was. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to pause there for just a minute. It's commentary. It's, it's not exegesis. But I just want to say, how good, at we are how good are we at resisting the Holy Spirit? Pretty good? I'd say we're probably really good at it. You know what human nature is all about? It's about a resistance to change. Even the most adventuresome of us like certain things to be in place, need certain things to be in place. We're highly resistant to change. We want stability. Function and form. Predictability. It helps us manage our lives. 
We want to move steadily toward what we might consider goodness, and we want to be able to measure it along the way. This is who we are. This is how we're programmed. But there's something really brilliant happening here. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, the way John describes it, it, it radically affects people. It changes people. We can see its effect. It blows, but we know not when, where the wind is blowing, where it's coming from or where it's blowing to. There's unpredictability there. All we know is that great things are going to happen when the Holy Spirit moves on the hearts of people. Conversion takes place. Lives are turned around. Directions are changed. Focus becomes different. Insights that couldn't have otherwise been ours become ours. When the Holy Spirit speaks, people change if they're listening, if their hearts are open. It's a profound miracle. Stephen just says, you're so good at resisting the Holy Spirit. And I thought about that. I, I, I thought about it this week. I prayed about this this week. I said, Lord, how good am I at resisting your spirit? And I know that if I struggle with that, you do too. Do we want to be a people resistant to the Spirit of God? How do we get the circumcision of heart and ear that Stephen is speaking of? You see, when his story becomes our story, things change. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Now you've betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. The members of the Sanhedrin were furious. They gnashed his teeth, their teeth. They drug him out to stone him, yelling at the top of their voices. Meanwhile, several things happened. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, as he's dying, feels the darkness, not the glory. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says out loud, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they were witness, as they were stoning him, Stephen said this prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Jesus described death as a sleep, and the language here carries forward. Stephen died in that stoning. But not until the life that had come to him in Christ had been lived out. Two things. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, says Jesus as he's dying. And Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, Jesus says as he's dying. You see, in this very little period of time, this very small window between Christ dying, Christ resurrected, the disciples coming to terms with this, meditating and praying in the upper room and being there and receiving the Spirit, preaching in this very, very short period of time. The story of God had so become the story of those who were following. The story of Christ 
had so become the story of those following that even in death, Stephen would be like Jesus. Even in death. Didn't take long. It didn't take long. It took the presence of the Spirit. When his story becomes our story, it gets hard. Jesus Jesus lays it out. I've preached it in the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says to the rich, if you would follow me, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. It doesn't come easy. There's a cost to discipleship. Jesus says, the servant is not greater than the master, nor the student greater than the teacher. So if I suffer, you're going to suffer. If men hate and revile me, they're going to hate and revile you because of me. There's a cost, and yet there's a glory. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I see heaven opened. I see the power. I see the light. I see the glory. When the story of God becomes our story, our church will never be the same. And I pray that that'll happen and not a moment too soon. And so, Lord, we wait and work and participate as you continue to work in our lives to make your story our story. We invite that. We ask you to bless us in that. In the name of Jesus, amen.